Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. Today, our guest is Lauren Friend. She's been working in the matrimonial field for now nearly two decades. And 10 years ago, she had the bravery to strike out and launch her own firm. In her practice, she works one-on-one with adults going through the divorce process, giving them the legal guidance they need to make smart decisions. But what's unique about her practice is that she also works with children as an attorney for the child. This is a topic that we've never tackled before on Financially Ever After, and I'm glad that you're tuning in because you're going to find out whether or not in your case that there should be an attorney for the child and what cases it's not necessary. You're going to understand who pays, what are the pitfalls and the things you need to know. And if you tune in to the very end, you will learn about some tips that she gives about how child support can be modified. You're right. So even after your divorce decree has been signed, sealed, and delivered, unfortunately, you could wind up back in court fighting about some of the old issues that you talked about before. She gives some important tips for you to heed and make sure that your agreement is as ironclad as possible. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome Lauren Friend to our podcast, Financially Ever After. So Lauren, it's really nice to have you here on Financially Ever After. You've been in the matrimonial law field for quite some time. Is it something that you knew you wanted to go into? How'd you find yourself in this field? Most people have a story of what brought them here. Well, I actually started in big law firm, corporate law, dealing with major companies, million dollar, billion dollar companies. And at the end of the day, I felt ineffectual. I didn't feel like I was helping anyone. So in 2010, I decided to get into the matrimonial field where I could be literally seeing people helped in worst times of their lives. It's a lot of therapy, part-time therapist, part-time friend, part-time, you know, psychiatrist. But at the end of the day, I feel like I'm helping people in the worst times of their lives. So that's really what drew me to matrimonial. And so it's been almost 10 years. Yes, it has. And have you always been on your own? And how has that been as a business owner? I did start out it. I went to two different matrimonial firms, but um, and I got some great experience there. But eventually I decided I did want to go off on my own. And mm-hmm. when you're dealing with matrimonial clients, typically they want you personally to deal with them. So the reason I've remained on my own is because you develop a very personal and private relationship with your clients. And I enjoy that. I take every phone call. I email all of my emails are from me. And I find that my clients appreciate that one-on-one contact. Yeah, I know that the clients we work with going through the divorce process, it's one of the most stressful times of their entire life. And that support network is kind of like the life or death of how they get through it and whether or not they get through it coming out as whole as possible. So I think it's a great approach. 
something that I wanted to talk to you about that you have an expertise in that we've never, ever talked about on Financially Ever After is talking about, number one, custody, but even diving down a little bit more deeper and talking about an attorney for your child and whether that's needed. But my first question I have is, does every case require an attorney to represent the child, knowing that this is not your attorney. You have your own attorney. Your husband may have their attorney, but this is a separate attorney that then represents your child. So when are the times when this is needed? Is it every case? Is it only certain cases? So we are appointed by the court or by the judges and chosen by those judges and also the parties mom and dad's attorneys to be attorneys for children when there are custody issues in dispute. So if the parties have worked out an agreement with visitation and custody and and all of that's been managed by them or their attorneys, they're not going to bring in an attorney for the child. But if the parties are arguing over custody or their visitation schedules, then the judges will typically bring us in. Certainly it's not always in the initial part of the case, but once it's determined that parties can't reach an arrangement between Mm -hmm. the two of them were appointed by the courts. And let's say I'm mom and I want my child to have an attorney. Can I appeal? Can I make that argument and have a attorney for my child if it's not been ordered, you know, necessarily by the court? Yes, you can certainly have you you personally or you can request that your attorney get an attorney for the child if you feel that your child needs a voice in this process and you and the and the husband are not coming to an agreement, yeah. you can request that. And oftentimes judges are happy to appoint us just to be able to get this viewpoint from the child that we couldn't otherwise have. Because yeah. we have mom saying, well, my son says X, Y, and Z, and dad's saying, no, he says ABC. So now yeah. these attorneys for the children come in and clarify this is actually what our client prefers. These are things that are bothering him at home. We get a much clearer picture of the home environment because it's not the parties trying to maybe create a different picture or maybe yeah. manipulate the viewpoint or create a more favorable light for themselves. As attorneys for children, my favorite part of that work is that kids don't know to lie. So they're very honest yeah. with us. They give us their honest interpretations. We get a direct insight into how the home environment is, who's the primary caregiver, who's taking you to the doctor all the time, who's the one helping you with the homework, yeah. our mom and dad arguing at home, things that the parties probably don't want coming to light, maybe the ugly underbellies. Children were able to speak with our clients about those things and yeah. bring those to the court's attention in most scenarios. So I'm thinking about if this situation were to happen in my marriage. So Copper. Sebastian's 13. He's a true teenager. Mm-hmm. And then my daughter's 10. Mm-hmm. And if this were up to them, mm-hmm. there's no question. They would still want to see me. They love me. They love me. But... They would want to spend the primarily majority of their time with dad because my husband is the guy that plays video games with him. They go out on Pokemon runs. I don't even know what freaking Pokemon (laughs) is. They can stay up late. 
They can have pizza for dinner. And I'm not painting him as like a bad dad. He is one of the best guys you could ever imagine. But he's the fun one. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one this morning. In fact, the kids were like, mom, are you going to go to work? And I said, well, of course I'm going to go to work. Why do you want me to go to work? Well, we want to play video games, Mm -hmm. right? So we have a dynamic where I tend to be a little bit harder, more structured. So how do you, as attorney for the child, how do you weave through that to get to, you know, know this child? Do you spend time at home with them? Do you talk to their teachers or their coaches? How do you get both their opinion and their view, but then also other things that maybe they're not able to tell you or are being swayed? Sure. So we get HIPAA forms signed by the parties right away. So we're okay. able to speak with their treating physicians. Okay. So doctors, therapists, psychiatrists, school personnel. Okay. We're able to reach out to all of those people. We're able to speak with the parties directly. So if, God forbid, this was your situation. Yeah, so you, talk, you would talk to me right. and you'd also talk to Michael. Right. And I will tell you, Michael would probably say, yes, I do play video games. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, bless him. Mm-hmm. He's like a kid. He's, so, he's a lot right. of fun. So we try to get <laughs> as full a picture as we can. And certainly when we're dealing with younger children, you know, they can change their opinion. So I can meet with them on one day when mom brings them and they have one opinion of of where they want to spend their time. And then when dad brings them, they change that opinion. They want to have ice cream for breakfast. You know, we discuss the reasons for their positions to the extent possible. Yeah. Certainly with the younger children, it's more apparent that their preferences are usually guided by things like ice cream and pizza and video games, whereas a 17-year-old or a 15-year-old has different wishes guided by different things. But we try to develop as full a picture as is possible with all the treating professionals in their life, coaches, and even the parties themselves are shedding a lot of light sometimes negative on the other party, but they're giving us their two cents on why a child may have a certain position just to try to make sure that they are not being alienated by one parent against another. They are not being, no parent is disparaging that that parent before an interview, which is very common, something we always are looking for. Are mommy and daddy talking badly about one another? Are mommy and daddy friends? Would mommy be excited for you to see daddy or Mm -hmm. would she be mad or sad? You know, depending on the ages, obviously, that would be couched differently for an older child than a younger one. But, you know, sadly, oftentimes we're seeing that one parent or both is trying to disparage the other yeah, kind of pulling that child right. between the two of you especially and, before they meet with me yeah so when the kids will come and use words that are way advanced when a child is saying for example i had a five-year-old tell me that he didn't want to see his father anymore because he wasn't being properly supervised so when i heard a five-year-old explain to me that he wasn't being properly supervised i know where that's coming from and that's a very yeah. unfortunate thing that i see a lot in the attorney for the child work Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're having interviews with a parent, are those conversations private? No, they're not. So So I think that's important to know. Right. That means, I mean, you're not their lawyer, right? There's not the attorney-client privilege. This is, you're acting in a different capacity for the best interest, not necessarily for the parent. Correct. But the best interest for your client, the child. Correct. And for the child's position, even if I don't agree with it, even if I think it's contrary to their best interest, if 
assuming they're capable of knowing voluntary judgment and of a certain age and maturity, I have to tell the court exactly what it is they want, even if I believe in my heart of hearts, it's the worst thing for them. But certainly I do warn the parties that I'm not your attorney. Anything you say to me is not privileged. And oftentimes their respective attorneys accompany them to make sure that anything that they're saying is not going to be perceived poorly by me. The next question I have, and this baffles me in the complexity of your work, that dealing with a child who is one or two versus six or seven versus 10 or 13 versus 18, or I guess, you know, maybe 17, all these children are in different developmental stages, yet you have the same task of doing what's best for that child. Some children who are very, very young can't really tell you what they prefer. How do you act in that role for, let's say, a six-month-old? Right. right? So typically a lot of jurists know or believe that it's not exactly wise to appoint an attorney to a child that's not even verbal yet. I tend to agree with that. I think that children should at least be verbal before we're appointed because at that point, what we're supposed to do is substitute our own judgment. So I would speak with mom and dad and all of these, you know, other peripheral peoples involved with the child and then gauge that child's position myself. I think it allows for a little too much of Lauren Friend and her viewpoint into mm-hmm. the formula when we're dealing with someone, a child of six months or two years even. Yeah. That does happen, unfortunately. And the job is just simply much easier with t- teenage or older children. But yeah. we're substituting our own judgment after we do our due diligence. But we ultimately are the ones putting basically our positions on the records to these yeah. jurors. You know, quite frankly, that is something I find to be problematic about the line of work when you're dealing with very young or perhaps nonverbal children, special needs kids, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. does arise quite a bit. So yeah. we have to be careful to be as educated as we can about everyone in this child's life and really work with the parties extensively yeah. to form that position in those scenarios. You talked a little bit about a case where you know, a five-year-old said that I'm not being sufficiently mm-hmm. properly supervised. Mm-hmm. If there are allegations of neglect or abuse, is that another time when a lawyer might be appointed for the child to help investigate that or come to the, the real happenings of what's going on? Certainly, in cases of abuse or neglect in the state of New York, they're known as Article 10. ACS is getting involved in your lives. It's not fun. Not fun. Very stressful, but they will almost always appoint an attorney very early on there because we need to get to the bottom of what's going on, especially if it's physical or sexual abuse. But ACS is really driving those cases. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there still would be maybe someone like you also there. Certainly, yes. For the child. Yes. So when you are there to learn about a child, I can visually in my mind understand, you know, reaching out to school and, you know, medical records and talking to the doctor. How do you manage talking with the child and interviewing them with the balance of trying not to scare them? I feel like this is such a traumatic time for children that sometimes that interaction can maybe make them feel frightened or unsettled. How do you manage that? And is there a certain amount of times that you should be ideally speaking to them or is every case a little different? 
I try to meet with my clients at least once a month, my child clients. Logistically, I do little things like I meet with them at a children's public library or the park or somewhere else that is not an office. I find it's that not, kids not get as that threatening. course. It's the or way, over the ice white cream, although they, they might well, want to come live with you. That might not work. Exactly. <laughs> I try to dress down and not yeah. you know, be in a business suit. And I try to make it as comfortable and as if they're not speaking to a professional. More like, let's talk about you. I want to hear about your day. And depending on their ages subtly shifting into, you know, what's happening at home, but making it as non-confrontational and not test-like conditions as is possible. So they don't yeah. feel, you know, that they're being graded, that their parents are in trouble, that they're going to get someone in trouble. Yeah. I try to be very clear that what we discuss is private unless you tell me otherwise. So you have to give me permission to be able to repeat what you say. So just like with a party or a parent, if my client as a child tells me, you can't repeat this. I am not able to repeat that. I'm bound by what they tell me. So I let them know that. And I also, I try to be careful to not let them believe that they're going to make a final determination for the parent's custody situation. Mom has her opinion. Dad has his. I want to know yours. We don't know what's going to happen yet, but no one is in trouble. Just being reassuring in that way. And of course, it is a traumatic time for them. I'll seek guidance from their treating therapist, if any, um, if there are any tricks to kind of breaking through. But over time, especially when I'm meeting with them, either, you know, bi-monthly or even once a month, we do develop a bond. And I feel that the interviews substantively become so much better toward the end of my representation usually because we're comfortable, they're comfortable with me and we've become, you know, they think of me as almost like a play date. Some of them, the younger ones actually think that, (laughs) but it is a tricky balance to find a way to make sure that they don't feel that they are causing their parents risk, that they are choosing a parent over the other or that whatever they say is going to go because, you know, I'm very clear with them just because you may want to see your dad every other weekend. I don't know that that's what we're going to agree to. So not letting them feel so empowered because I think later on that can cause them to feel tremendous guilt or disloyalty to one parent. Lauren, I have to say, I would not have ever thought of that, but you're so right. Them feeling like they're the ones steering the boat. Mm -hmm. What responsibility? Tremendous responsibility. I mean, wow. Especially given some of their ages. Yeah, and if that that's a big does burden. Happen, right? That's a big burden. So, you know, tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens. Exactly. Um, you know, there are many other factors. I think that's really powerful. Has there been a change? Are people more litigious around custody? Are there any trends? Is there, are people doing more 50 50? I know that 20 years ago it was kind of like, Typically, the mom had primary custody. Have there been any trends or changes that you're seeing? Certainly, even in the past 10 years, I've noticed that it's almost become a default position for most parents to want or to most fathers to be seeking 50-50 or more than 50. Certainly, I believe that ties into child support on a lot of their cases. But, you know, that conventional, traditional alternating weekends to dad schedule that we used to have in the 80s and some of the 90s is no longer. So yes, it happens in some of my cases, but a lot of other cases, especially where two parents live close to one another, they want to do a, you know, a two, two, three, or one week on, one week off, if that's feasible with the children's schools. Mm -hmm. But yes, I would say that fathers are seeking 
much more visitation mm-hmm. than in the 70s and 80s. Yep. And you talked a little bit about custody and child support payments potentially impacting what men are asking for, what women are asking for. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because a lot of our listeners may not realize that the amount of time that that child spends with you can impact the amount that you're entitled to for child support. Sure. Well, First, the court's going to determine who is the primary caregiver, and they look at the amount of nights that a child is spending in a house. So if the mother, say, out of 14 nights has nine of those nights, she's the primary caregiver, she's the custodial parent, she will be the one receiving the child support. I have seen in cases where perhaps, I don't want to be sexist, but perhaps the father wants to get out of child support, so he will argue for having the child seven of those 14 nights. In that situation, the seven and seven, so completely joint custody, the moneyed spouse will still have to pay child support. So whoever's earning more is still going to be paying that. But the custodial parent is going to be receiving not only child support, but also what we call add-ons. So a percentage for extracurriculars, unreimbursed medical, camps. Yeah. Yes. Tutor. Right. Things like that. And that's usually going to be done on a pro rata basis. And when you say pro rata, is it pro rata on the time spent or pro rata based on their earnings and their capabilities financially? Based on, well, the custodial parents getting this support from the other parent and it's based on their income. So they're going to compare their two incomes. Yeah. And so getting out of child support completely by petitioning for equal time spent isn't necessarily going to leave her, let's again say that, you know, she's the lower income person, isn't going to necessarily leave her without support, child support or add-ons, if he's earning an income that's substantially more. Correct. And the court's always going to be focusing on in these child support cases, the needs of the child. So a lot of of people out there think they're just going to be able to ask for extraordinary amounts. But the thing is, these support magistrates are going to be looking at the actual needs of a child. So certainly, you know, certainly with special needs children or handicapped children, those needs are exponentially higher in most cases. But there's going to be a a limit. So you can't just walk in there and say, I need a million dollars a year for this child because he makes 10 million. That's not going to work. You're going to have to back up why that mm-hmm. child needs that kind of money. So that's also taken into account in support litigation. Which is why financially ever after women, you need to make sure that you understand your expenses and your child's expenses so that you can go and really make the case of this is what my child needs with regards to the cost for everything from dinners to vacations to medical to bless my daughter just got her palate expander off this week and I was Lauren I was so excited we spent seven thousand dollars on that palate expander and going in every month you know have it cranked out a little bit more so now she has a beautiful smile but they said you know we're going to call you next week because we want to talk to you about the next step. Braces. I'm thinking Invisalign. I'm thinking, what do you mean the next step? Mm. And so here we go. Mm. You know, here we go. What more orthodontia? And, you know, I apologize 
to all the listeners because they've heard me rehash from the beginning of this process to the ongoing. And it all is because she sucked her thumb. So do not let your children suck your thumb. If you take anything, the most financially valuable thing from this, this conversation right now is do not let your child suck their thumb. I should have really cut it off, but I guess ACS would be in my, then, in my, ACS. then we would have a problem. Then we have a problem. But Tell me a little bit about the amount of income that can be considered for child support. So, you know, of course, it's what are the actual costs, right. but there are some limitations and some ceilings or some thresholds that there are for New York State, too. And every state's different, but can you talk a little bit about New York State? Sure. We're looking at a cap of 148000 and anything over that is discretionary. So if a man is to say or... Not to be sexist again, but to say the husband's making a million dollars, we're looking at the first 148K of that, and then anything over that is, as I just said, discretionary. So there's a huge gray area of case law where you have a lot completely of, disproportionate yeah. awards, and you know you have professional athletes paying what the mothers think is ridiculously low because the needs of the child perhaps are not as great, and everything is very disproportionate. It's very difficult to predict what that discretionary amount is. It's always best to try to work it out in a settlement with just attorneys and not get the support magistrate involved if possible because it's such a gray area. Mm -hmm. So if just trying to split the difference in some ways, if it's enough, it can be revisited. So child support, even though your award is a final award, you can go back to court if there is a substantial change of circumstances. So God forbid, if the child is to develop special needs that did not exist at the time the award mm -hmm. was entered, you can go back. There's cost of living adjustments. So, and there's there could be an upward or downward modification request made. So dad can say, hey, listen, I lost my job. I'm not making a million dollars anymore. Now I'm making 20K a year. And he can show that this happened basically through no fault of his own. And he can't get any more higher paying work than he has. He can look for a downward modification. And just as mom can say, hey, listen, dad is now making 20 million a year. The child's needs have changed. She can look for an upward modification. So it is not a technically final for the rest of the day's award. There are some changes that can be made, but under very limited circumstances because courts don't want to keep seeing the same litigants reappear. And the same is... Yeah, and they're very busy. Right. And the same can be said about custody and visitation. So you should consider those to be final orders. However, there are situations where those things can be altered in the future yeah. if certain thresholds are met. So talking about expenses for children, one of the things that I forgot to ask you, so the attorney for the child, who pays for them? The parties will pay for us, typically also on a pro rata basis. The court sets the amount and the okay. hourly rate. And our rates are typically, I would say, slightly less than the parties' attorneys in Manhattan. I mean, some party attorneys in Manhattan are upwards of 1100 1200 an hour. So... I don't know any attorneys for children that are have those types of rates, but the, yeah. the parties will pay us typically either 50-50 or pro rata. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what happens if one party pays their bill mm -hmm. to you mm -hmm. and the other doesn't? I'm just asking as a professional, can you go to the judge and order that they pay? Because 
that's not right. To be honest, you're one of the most lovely people I've ever met, but they could be mad at you. hundred percent. Right? They could be saying, oh, she's taking the side of so-and-so and I'm not going to pay time. her. Happens Right? I can time. only imagine. So we have motions that we can make seeking that the court enforce their orders and have these payments are ordered by the court so we can go for contempt, we can go for fees, something we're all loath to do. But certainly once you align with one party, over the other, oftentimes that party's invoices just probably yeah. line their bird cages because we're not getting paid and it, and it happens quite a bit. Yeah. But it's good for women to know mm-hmm. that their husband cannot bully them by not paying. And Correct. that we'll still do our jobs. Exactly. I'm not going to not do my work or meet with my kid clients because I'm not getting paid. Yeah. Um, you know, if I have to deal with a motion, motion practice later on, I'll have to deal with it. But I'm certainly, it's not going to change the way that I represent my clients or it's not going to change my position yeah. uh, or my client's position or the way that I advocate for him or her just because I'm not being paid. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's good because that gives more power. That gives more power to her because there are a lot of, Women, I'm sure that you talk to and that I've talked to where they're just so angry. The spouse that they're divorcing is so angry about whatever situation is going on that they're not being compliant with the process. Certainly happens all the time. And there are obviously legal measures that we can take. All the attorneys are used to taking motion practice. You know, best advice I could give to anyone just going through a divorce to begin with is to try to sublimate those feelings of anger and resentment and hostility for the benefit of your children. Yeah. Kids are just so much happier and healthier. Two separate happy households. They're a lot more resilient than people think and then give them credit for. But that hostility tends to lend itself to disparaging comments. And the kids, they're sponges. They pick up on that kind of stuff. And then they tell us as their attorneys. And courts have been known in situations with extreme alienation. One party is obviously alienating that kid from the other to switch custody. It's something courts take very seriously. And it's something all of us as attorneys for children hate to see. Mm -hmm. Putting a child under that kind of pressure, disparaging comments, telling them things they have no business knowing about the other. So really trying to focus on how damaging that is to the children, even if it's true. Mm -hmm. Those disparaging comments, letting your children know that you have this evil relationship with the spouse and putting them and casting them in a negative light is never the answer. Yeah. When you talk about couples not agreeing, let's assume the court has put and, and ruled on a custody schedule and everything's moving along. And then four years down the line, the child doesn't want to deal with that custody schedule. Maybe he's staying with mom. He wants to spend more time at dad's or vice versa. What happens? Are you ever brought in again at a later date? How would a couple deal with that? Either the child deciding that they want a different custody schedule or even the parents deciding they want a different custody schedule and can't agree. And I think that's the pieces, you know, not being able to agree. Right. So, I mean, of course, if they could agree, they can go off. There are no custody police that are going to come to your house and ask you if you're following along. And things change over time. Jobs change. Schools change. Sometimes people move. The lucky parents that are out there are able to just reach this agreement. A child just wanting to spend a different, you know, schedule with their parents isn't usually enough to really 
fundamentally change the schedule. However, if there's a good enough reason and the parties cannot come to an agreement, they can come back for a modification. But they do, again, have to prove that unforeseen substantial change of circumstances before the court will attack an agreement that was hard fought, litigated, and so yeah, ordered. Of course. They don't want to undermine their former orders. You reach them, hopefully, with the benefit of counsel. So they're not quick to come in there and change it. But if you could show that there's this huge change, that's the threshold they have to meet to be able to just overturn an old yeah. agreement. And the older it is and the more effective it's been, the court is loath to do that. So yeah. once you're you're entering these agreements, try to envision until your kid is 18, envisioning yeah. changing yeah. jobs, moves, all of that. Try to yeah. account for that. And luckily your attorneys are hopefully well-versed in putting in contingencies yep. and putting little loopholes in the agreement where you guys can reach another arrangement. Great. As you may agree, if you want to change this in five years, it's not working. Great. That's mm-hmm. fine. So we like to yeah. make sure that those little specific languages are in there so that the parties can work among themselves and never have to come back to the courthouse. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the other thing of bringing it back to money, if there's a change in custody, does that mean that the child support can be modified? Yes, certainly. So, so if, that's important to know. Right. So if the child is, say, living with mom primarily, and then there's this change of circumstances, child now moves in with dad, mom becomes non-custodial parent, and she's now on the hook for child support. So certainly something to be considered can't be avoided. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This has been so phenomenal. You've answered so many questions. I feel like I've been preparing you with questions. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or anything else that you think is important or kind of like wisdoms or, you know, wisdom tips or advice to women are going through the divorce process and unfortunately not agreeing about custody? Well, again, I would just press upon your listeners that, you know, going back to what I said, lay off the disparagement, make sure your kids are at least perceiving you two to be co-parenting and use your best efforts to do so. You're going to be tied to this person for the rest of your life when you have a child with them. So trying to create as amicable a situation as is possible for the benefit of your kids is always best advice. Do not try to alienate your child from the spouse Especially not when you have attorneys for children coming and sniffing around for just that. It's in poor taste. It looks badly on you and the jurist and the judge will will not be happy with that. In terms of worrying about pursuing a divorce for financially based reasons, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners clearly have gone through that or are going through that, I would say for the benefit of your kids, they will thrive with two separate but happy households. And while, of course, there are monetary concerns and it's a very tough and stressful situation financially for all parties involved, it will prove to be so much more beneficial emotionally, mentally for your kids that maybe that can outweigh those fears, those financially based fears that a lot of your listeners are harboring or fears of starting this process. Because I always tell clients that come in parties, obviously not the children, but By the time you've gotten to me, the worst of it is over. So unlike the dentist, when you get there and the worst of it is just going to begin, (laughs) by the time you get to me, the worst is actually behind you, even though you can't see it at that moment. But I'm sure these, you know, your listeners have been living 
with yeah. whatever's going on in their homes for months, years. Yeah. And now we're just kind of finalizing it. Think of it in that way. Yeah, that's a great way. And I just want to share a piece of advice and I can't take credit for it, but a friend of mine, we were talking about how she's been able to, through her divorce, take the high road. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know what I do is that every time I speak or I do something, I ask myself one question. Will what I'm going to say or do help or hurt my child? And she said, that's how I have gauged every step of this process of my divorce. And it's what's helped me, even though it's a very acrimonious mm-hmm. divorce, very. It's helped me stay high when he's gone low mm-hmm. and help me make sure that my child is as strong, healthy, and happy as possible. And her child's doing really well. That's you know, wonderful. I mean, really doing well. So that I felt like was so brave and so wise of her, you know, and Very such wise. a simple question, but yet really leads you to that right answer, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How do people find out about your practice? Where do you practice and who are your clients typically? What area is it primarily Manhattan here? Do you work with clients outside of that realm? I do primarily Manhattan. I've done some boroughs when I can. It's tricky with my schedule. I have a website. It's Lauren Friend Law, and all my information is on there. Happy to speak with any listeners out there who have questions. And obviously, like I said, try to put this time behind you making the call, whether it be obviously to me or any other attorney, have a few consultations. I always tell people have more than one. We are very personal lawyers. We're not closing your house. We are going to be with you Mm -hmm. for several months or years. So I always tell people thinking about a divorce, have a few consultations. It makes sense. Make sure you gel with these attorney, the attorney that you choose. They're going to become your lifeline. You're going to be calling them on holidays and weekends and nights and That's what we're here for. So it is a personal choice and much like a hairdresser, you have your preferences, but do some shopping around would be another piece of advice for your listeners. Don't go with the first person, ask friends, ask colleagues. There are some websites that you can look up also, AVVO, AVO. That's where you can get some good reviews from other people who have used your attorney. It's like a Yelp for attorneys. Martindale is another website where you can search attorneys by practice area and location. And I would also suggest trying to choose an attorney in your county, mm-hmm. especially counties like Richmond are very closed counties. We Manhattan attorneys rarely go out there. There's basically the same 20 lawyers there. So I'd say choose someone who's one of the good old boys and not necessarily man. The judge knows it. They're familiar. So don't choose a Long Island attorney for Manhattan case. I would say trying to make sure you stay local because the judges do know us. My Manhattan judges know me as I know them. We have a level of respect that's already been forged over many years. So that's another just tidbit, I would say. Mm -hmm. But again, definitely shop around. Do your homework. And I think it's really important that our listeners know today we've really talked about your role as the attorney for the child, but that you also represent individuals. Sure, absolutely. Where you're you're not acting in that capacity as attorney for the child, but truly as the parent 
advocate, helping them with custody issues, with maintenance, with child support, with, you know, all the myriad of other things that come up during the divorce. Yes, as certainly. Well. Parties as well. This was about attorneys for children, but, you know, certainly represent the parties too. Yeah. But I love that you have this broad background because you of all people bring another voice into the room. Just even representing that individual parent, because of all of your work with children, I can only imagine that that helps you bring that even more holistic ability to help them give them their best practice of making sure that their child is going through this process as in a healthy way as possible. Sometimes when you see the worst, it can be the most effective teacher. And sharing stories about the worst can be an effective example for clients not to go down that path. Exactly. I feel that it absolutely strengthens my work with parties, knowing how my kid clients are handling certain things, being able to give them real-time examples yep. Yep. what I'm seeing and things that are frowned upon or, or the do's positive. And don'ts. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Well, thank you thank for you so much, being Stacey. here and thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. And stay tuned. We're going to be going through the highlights of our talk today. And also just want to let you know that all of the resources that we talked about today, avo.com, Martindale, are all going to be in show notes as well as Lauren's contact information. In just a few minutes, I'm going to go over the main takeaways from today's episode because, wow, we covered a lot. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about our Second Opinion program. Our Second Opinion program is a way that you can get essentially a second opinion about your finances. Whether you work with an advisor or you're managing things on your own, will help you understand if you're doing things right or if things could be done even better. I know for me, when I did my knee surgery, I didn't go just to one doctor. I actually went to two doctors because I wanted to hear if I really needed to go down that route. Well, with that second doctor really verifying that knee surgery was the right way to go, I went under the knife. The good news is, is that I'm signed up for another half Ironman and just ran eight miles last weekend. It's the same thing with your portfolio. Everything could be great, but having a second opinion is going to give you the confidence and the information and knowledge to know that you're on the right track. So reach out to us, please, www.francisfinancial.com, or you can email me, Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. I don't know about you, but I was blown away by the compassion that Lauren has for her clients, and she shared with us something that we don't get to hear a lot about, and that is how divorce impacts our children. What I really love is that she was able to share how to effectively work with an attorney for your child, when it's important, how to tackle those big decisions about when they live with mom or when they live with dad and what financial implications you essentially need to know. And she also talked a little bit about the difference of how she works with a child who's maybe younger, maybe four or five versus an older child. And I know I shared a little bit about my kids wanting to live with my husband because they tend to eat a little bit more ice cream when he's serving them dinner versus than I. And how in the event of a divorce, 
sometimes kids are swayed by that kind of thing and how she and her role and you as a parent can help the court see through that. I'm really glad that you tuned in. And if you have any questions, please reach out. Most importantly, please join our Financially Ever After podcast Facebook page. Like us, share us, and write a review. We would love to hear from you. Thank you again for tuning in, and we'll be talking to you in two weeks.